Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, Columbia British Studies, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Orlando Harriman, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University, Sharon Marcus' book, The Drama of Celebrity. First, we'll hear Sharon speaking about her book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Elisa Solomon, Professor of Journalism at Columbia, made at the panel. Thank you all very much for being here. I want to thank Heyman Society Fellows for having this series, which is a lot of work, but also a great pleasure for all of us to get to hear what our colleagues are doing. Thank you, Alan, and thank you to all three of you. I am going to speak fairly briefly about what the book is about in a really general way, and I think I'm going to use my rebuttal time (laughs) to add any details that weren't covered by the panelists. The drama of celebrity presents both a history of celebrity culture and a theory of celebrity culture. The history of celebrity culture that I offer is to argue that the origins of modern celebrity culture lie not with Hollywood, and I sometimes have to tell this to a younger crowd, not with the internet, but (laughs) in the 18th and 19th centuries. One of the points of this book is to write a history that focuses on continuities between the past and the present rather than change over time. Much has changed. We can talk about what's changed. But it's actually quite striking to me, given how much the internet, for example, has affected celebrity culture, how much I can still see of 18th and 19th celebrity mania in what we experience today. So the book is arguing that if we want to understand modern celebrity culture, which I loosely define as a situation in which ordinary people can make other ordinary people famous, we need to return to celebrity culture's 18th and 19th century roots, and particularly to phenomena that began in some ways in the 18th century, but really flowered in the 19th. And those would be a mass theatrical culture, one where people are going to the theater, no matter what their income level, three or four times a week because of increased leisure. A mass press, which begins in the 1830s, remarkably in the United States, France, and England at around the same time, despite great differences in press laws among those three countries. In railway and steamship travel, in the rise of telegraphy, which allowed news to travel quickly, and especially in the rise of commercial photography. Photography was invented before 1850, but it doesn't become commercialized until the 1860s. And that's the point at which one could purchase a photograph of a famous person or place as almost as easily (coughs) as today one can look up the images online. They were everywhere and they were quite cheap. And if you lived in a place where you couldn't walk the streets and have opportunities to purchase a small format postcard or carte de visite, you could easily order them through the mails as many periodicals devoted to photography invited their readers to do. So that's the history. The history is that modern celebrity really started exploding in the 19th century and that it hasn't stopped exploding since. And the theory is that the structure of celebrity culture is unpredictable and interactive. And to understand why that isn't simply a completely obvious claim that anybody would say, 
we need to look at what other people have said in the past. <laughs> um, not these people, but I would say that first and foremost there's a folk theory or a vernacular theory of celebrity that really focuses on the stars themselves and implicitly by focusing on individual stars. If you're interested in, a very few people are interested in celebrity culture, unless they're scholars who mm -hmm. decided to take that on as their topic. Most people express their interest in celebrity culture as an interest in a particular celebrity. And by default, then, there's an implicit theory of celebrity that says charismatic stars are the key agents of their own fame. <coughs> and they find iconography, as you can see here, that helps to support the sense of them as glamorous individuals. There's a much more common theory represented by some of these books, which are among the most cited books in celebrity studies, that is skeptical and hostile to celebrity culture. It dismisses celebrities as famous only for being famous. I wish I had a dollar for every time someone quoted that to me in the 10 years I worked on this book. <laughs> and in this theory, the focus is on the power of monolithic media companies to manufacture stars and to manipulate the public. The underlying argument of this theory is almost platonic, that celebrity as a set of representations is deceptive. There's a Marxist spin, of course, that says it's an ideological ruse. And the probably the most famous uh, source of this is Adorno in his writings on the culture industry. And there are often analogies to Marxist theories of the commodity, where the celebrity is the commodity and what's being hidden are the real conditions of celebrities' manufacture. Uh, there are a lot of things to argue with about that theory, not least that it, those who have studied how actual audiences think about the celebrities they're interested in, for example, Joshua Gamson and Claims to Fame, find that if you talk to people interested in celebrities, they rarely express 100% belief in the materials they consume. They rarely think that the image the celebrity presents is the real person. But um, Adorno wasn't that interested in talking to real fans. Here we have my image representing the third most common theory of celebrity culture. Can anybody guess who <laughs> these people are um, appreciating? Bing, bing, bing. That's why we make you chair. Yes. What 1944. These are fans of Frank Sinatra. Um, he was Before he became a movie star, he was a crooner, and he was known for having a very um, often described as hysterical set of female fans who would faint. I don't see anybody fainting, and I also really like that boy right in the middle of his <laughs> Somebody brought their little brother. So the third approach to celebrity studies has been most in place since the 1980s, and it comes out of the kind of cultural studies done in England that focused on the public and was more interested in a social history approach where you thought, tried to find out what people actually thought. And here, the claim is that stars don't make themselves, and the culture industry doesn't simply manufacture them. It's the public, ultimately, that makes the stars. A lot of what goes into fandom, according to this theory, is a desire for community. And there's often a strong emphasis on actual art made by fans, although that's not really the most common form of doing this. Okay, I have here a lesser version of this diagram, my, my editor's here, so I feel I must point out that the version of the diagram in the book is more aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> so, but this represents my attempt to sort of synthesize all of those theories and go beyond them. And my point about all of those theories is that they're wrong precisely because they're all correct. That is, celebrity culture is shaped 
by people in the media and by the public and by stars themselves. But it's not shaped by any one of those groups alone. It's the interactions of these three groups that produces celebrity culture. No single one of these groups has the power to define who becomes a star or what their stardom will mean or how it will unfold. And let's take this as a more alluring version of the same argument. We have the fans, we have the celebrity, we have the photographer who took the picture, but we also have at the far right the emblem of the media that made Elvis Presley a star before he began making films, the phonograph recording. So the last thing I'll say is that I try to develop a theory of how celebrity culture works that also explains why it might be so alluring. So rather than say what's <coughs> alluring is that we like to gossip, which is true, and that it's easier to gossip about strangers, which is usually true, or that there might be particular content to a particular celebrity that interests us, it's also the form of celebrity culture that engages us. The fact that it's unpredictable because it's so complex and dynamic, and the fact that we know that we ourselves participate in it and help influence its outcome in some way, but not, again, in a way that can be predicted because we are you know, one element in a much larger equation. So with that, I'll simply say that the book, in focusing on the 19th century, focuses quite a bit on the actress Sarah Bernhardt, who I will also show you a picture of. I talk a bit about Oscar Wilde. Sarah Bernhardt, who was born in 1844, <laughs> died in 1923, became famous in France in the 1870s and famous around the world starting in the 1880s, and was one of the first celebrities to really pay as much attention to her offstage persona as to her onstage achievements. She was hailed as a great actress. A lot of her work was in the classics as well as in melodrama, but she pervaded an image of herself offstage and on in some of her choices of roles as willful, defiant, eccentric, here she's shown sleeping in a coffin, um, uh, no real solid explanation of why she had this photograph taken, but it did get her talked about. Um, and her fame, by any measure, was really spectacular. If you measure it in terms of the number of photographs taken of her, the number of places she visited in the world, or even the number of mentions of her in newspapers. And I'll end just with a metric of that. So I compared the number of mentions of Sarah Bernhardt in British newspapers during the peak of her career and the 10 years following her death to the same years of for mentions of Charles Dickens, easily the most famous author of the 19th century in England, and her number of mentions in newspapers exceeded his, I think, by a factor of at least two. So she was extremely well known, and that was one of the reasons I picked her as a through line. I wanted to find a figure who was one of the superstars of the 19th century. Now we'll hear the comments Columbia professor Elisa Solomon made at the panel. Hey, well, um, congratulations, Sharon, and um, thanks very much for inviting me. I'm honored to be part of this conversation. Um, there's a lot that I learned from the book, and I enjoyed it um, immensely, um, so much so that I've assigned it to my students um, as, as a model of scholarship and, and clear, engaging writing um, as a as a way for them to think about, uh, these are arts journalists, to think about celebrity in a historicized and um, complex 
way, and um, and I should say that up until now, we've been my colleague David Hayden and I have been assigning a lot of those other writers on celebrity were <laughs> up on that slide before. So it's uh, lucky for us that um, this book has come along, um, and um, and I think it also represents maybe something of a cautionary tale, which is largely what I'm going to um, try to talk about. Uh, this evening, um, but a, a couple of a couple of other points um, first. One, um, just anecdotally, I told my partner when I was reading this, I was telling my partner about it. I, I learned something about the uh, abiding power of Sarah Bernhardt, which is that my uh, my late mother-in-law, who was born in 1910, um, so would have been barely an adolescent when Sarah Bernhardt died, and certainly never saw her perform. Um, used to say to my partner when she was acting up as a child, stop, stop all that Sarah Bernhardt <laughs> um, uh, activity. Um, and you know there were a lot of things that I was sort of talking back to um, as I was as I was reading the book, and and it um, caused me to re reflect on a lot of things. So sir, first, just for the record, I want to say that. Um, you know, metrics and facts be damned, Ringo was not the cutest beetle. <laughs> and, um, and, and, the, and the, the, the book also got me to reflect on my own experiences of fandom, um, not least uh, to consider whatever possessed me to purchase and wear around all summer a t-shirt bearing the figure of Megan Rapino. <laughs> um, so there are lots of threads that, that I would love to pull out for discussion. Um, you cite a statistic of early on um, saying that 18, there were 18 million theater goers in New York City in 1905, which is an astonishing number. Um, but a number that, of course, is quite a lot bigger if you include the foreign language um, theater as well. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that I number probably, probably does. Okay. Um, but that's <coughs> in any case, you know, millions of people were attending the theater in, in German, Italian, and Yiddish. Um, and I don't know a thing about the German or Italian theater, but the, the Yiddish theater had um, was also part of this engine of star making machinery in, in an enormous way. And there were uh, both both New York and London had actresses who were referred to as the Sarah Bernhards of the Yiddish theater. Um, and I think it could, it could be interesting to look at the, these celebrities as, as vectors also of acculturation, um, as well as a kind of tie to the, um, you know, the, the, the place of origin, um, and to see how that kind of stardom diverged from and paralleled um, Bernhardt's own. Um, I'd also love to draw you out a bit more on the concept of imitation and think about the relationship between celebrity and drag performance. Um, what, what qualities does a celebrity have to have to enter the pantheon of icons uh, who become the, um, the, the people to be impersonated in this um, particular and often campy style? And <clears throat> what kinds of, you know, uh, exaggerations, drag highlights that may be similar to and again diverge from the kinds of um, critical cartoons that you talk about in, in the book. Um, and third, I'm interested in your thoughts on the celebrity of theater stars specifically whose performances live only in the descriptions and memories of the people who saw them. Um, you know, unlike the Hollywood stars who come later, 
um, or, or singing, you know, singers uh, who come later who we can find on film, video, and recordings. Um, you know, one, one imagines, for example, um, that Bernhardt's sinuous exit in Tosca that is so, is described so, um, so well in the book and, and um, comes up again a couple of times. What could be a familiar meme today, one we might upload and use to comment on maybe vanquishing a villain and then, you know, uh, calmly sashaying from the scene. Um, but all we can do is imagine it, and it's perhaps because that's all we can do that, that it draws its lasting power. Um, but, so the, as the representative here of the, the school and maybe profession of journalism, um, I want to use the rest of my time to focus on the, the role of one of these points in that triangle, um, namely uh, the media, which you note has um, been part of the star-making machinery from the get-go and in fact grew up with celebrity itself. Um, I'm going to argue that actually this point is diminishing <coughs> in um, three related ways, and as a result, the triangle is becoming so lopsided that it might just flatten into a straight line that leaves journalism completely out of the drama. Um, so maybe I should start by making a distinction um, only to um, probably collapse it, have to collapse it. But um, that is between... Um, news reporting, even cultural news reporting and criticism on the one hand and celebrity journalism on another. Like the very fact that there's a category in journalism called celebrity journalism um, speaks to the way that it has abandoned um, and seeded some of the um, most important principles and standards of journalistic practice. Um, I mean, in news reporting, you know, it's true that celebrity can drive those stories, too. You know, if I get arrested for protesting climate change in Washington, it's not a story. If Jane Fonda does, then a photo of hers on the homepage of, you know, USA Today and so on. Um, but specifically, celebrity journalism is, is a corner that has made, historically, quite a number of compromises that I think have had some um, very dangerous consequences for us in this moment. Um, celebrity journalists <laughs> go on junkets, paid for usually by the studio or publisher or um, you know person who represents uh, company that represents the celebrity. Um, they accept literally you know two minute encounters with the star that they're writing about and then it becomes a kind of competition with other journalists to try to you know come up with the one question nobody else is going to think of um, and the celebrities or really more their people um, control the coverage and um, it's very hard to breach the wall of press reps and agents um, press reps by the way being something that was invented in the 19th century along with all of this by um, uh, P.T. Barnum, inventor of the press release, um, and you know these 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 tools have drived and shaped journalistic coverage um, since then, um, and this kind of control of the coverage that celebrity journalists have acquiesced to uh, brings us to where you end the book, um, Sharon, um, and I love the hilarious setup um, that you have. Um, Huh? No, I'm not going to say. And I agree that reality TV did not bring us President Donald Trump. Um, but I do think that press coverage of reality TV has brought us Donald Trump's contempt for the press. And that's because Trump's understanding of journalism comes from the bubble that he lived in 
for the decade before his campaign began. began. And it shocks and enrages him, um, or at least pretend shocks and definitely enrages him, when journalism decides to do something other than trade flattery for access. He expects to have the same kind of kowtowing coverage as a public servant that he enjoyed as a reality TV show host. Namely, setting the conditions on interviews, how long they would last, what subjects are off limits, what questions are allowed, and then being assured of favorable write-ups. So those who don't comply are writing fake news and enemies of the people. Second, media ownership has turned broadcast news, especially in the last two decades, into a kind of fawning vector of stardom. By the late 20th century, news media were bought up by a few big conglomerates, all of them entertainment companies. So Walt Disney Company, for instance, owns ESPN, the Disney Channel, A&E, Lifetime, 277 radio stations, music and book publishing companies, the film production company Touchstone, Miramax, Walt Disney Pictures, Pixar Animation Studios, and oh yeah, ABC News. Viacom owns Paramount Pictures, MTV, Showtime, DreamWorks, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, CBS News Corps, which is to say Rupert Murdoch, has 20th Century Fox, HarperCollins, Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and NBC Universal holds MSNBC, Bravo, Universal Pictures, Focus Features, NBC News, among other holdings. So that means that entertainment coverage on these networks rolls around inside a jolly feedback loop, which pushes its own celebrities. Uh, the cultural critic Mark Harris has explained, for instance, the circumstances of the creepy access Hollywood tape that seems so devastating to so many of us when it was revealed during the Trump campaign, but ended up having no impact on this campaign whatsoever, um, proving the Fifth Avenue quip to be true, at least in spirit. Mark Harris writes, ask yourself what put Trump on that bus in the first place and allowed him to talk so freely. The answer, it was a safe space, a co-journalistic <coughs> enterprise produced by NBC, the network that aired The Apprentice, in which different house rules prevail. The so-called interview was a publicity segment. The so-called journalist was a douchey wingman. The actress unwittingly roped into being their tour guide was a performer on Days of Our Lives on an NBC daytime soap on which Trump was about to do a cameo, which would help Days of Our Lives, which would help The Apprentice, which would help access Hollywood. And this all relates to the third way the media point of the triangle, I think, has been shaved away, and that's that celebrities are increasingly bypassing journalists altogether. A number of uh, pop music performers, for example, who refuse to give interviews, Taylor Swift, Drake, Frank Ocean, um, they just don't talk to journalists. <clears throat> and they, instead, they use social media platforms to roll out their own controlled narratives. Um, Trump obviously does the same. He's essentially done away with press briefings. And he speaks directly to his fans through tweets and rallies. So the field of celebrity where um, the, the field, the media still matters in the field of celebrity quite a lot. But media, I'd argue, that is um, a tool controlled by the celebrities themselves, thereby turning um, a three-way drama um, into an equation, a dangerous equation of endless flattery. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast, celebrating Sharon Marcus' book, The Drama of Celebrity. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Rajiv Sethi and Brendan O'Flaherty's book, Shadows of Doubt, Stereotypes, Crime, and the Pursuit of Justice. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.